All right, we're going to continue our series through the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles, grab them. Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Acts chapter 2. If you don't, uh, if you don't know, uh, Acts is telling the story about after Jesus has left and ascended to heaven and left the disciples, uh, what happened next. And so uh, it's like the sequel to the Gospels. And it's really talking about the early church and how they came to be and how they organized everything and, and figured it all out. And so uh, let's read Acts chapter 2 together. Luke writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and says these words. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Some of y'all are like, oh, where's this sermon going? <laughs> now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phagiria and um, whatever that word is. It's okay, you know, it's okay when you read the Bible and you don't know what the word, you just go, you know? Speaking in tongues, some of y'all had understanding, some of you didn't. Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to walk through the rest of it, but I'm not going to read it all just yet. We'll get there. When I was growing up, believe it or not, I never enjoyed church. I thought it was boring and weird, and I did not like it. Uh, when I was first going to church, I was at a Methodist church, and I, the things I remember, I remember the stained glass up in the middle of the baptistry, and Jesus was kneeling, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. I remember my grandma putting on this old robe and singing in the choir. I remember my grandpa in the back running the sound. I remember the pastor praying, and when he said, let us pray, I remember being confused because I was like, am I supposed to say what he says, or are we praying together? Am I supposed to do that? Because sometimes we would pray things all together, and I didn't know if this was one of those times, or, and, and, and so I didn't know what to do. I was confused, so that was weird. And, and, and mostly I remember counting down the minutes until it was over because I wanted to go outside, and they had this cool ramp, and we could run up and down the ramp, and I wanted to do that. And then I remember not really going to church for a while, and that was nice because I could sleep in, and who doesn't like sleeping in? Uh, but then we started going again, and this time we went to a, a Baptist church, a missionary Baptist church, and I remember not understanding why the preacher was always yelling. I mean, like, real, really yelling. 
Not just like excited, just like screaming all the time. And I was like, what is going on? And I remember the kid who sat near us and he had this suit on all the time, super nice suit. And I remember that was weird because at school, he did not dress like that. He dressed very odd at school, but he had a suit on there. So remember that. Um, And then we were out of church again. And the next time I went to church was because a friend asked me to go. And I just remember being bored out of my mind and not being able to sleep because I was sitting with the youth like on the front row. And so I couldn't sleep because I'd get caught. But I just remember not waiting, couldn't wait till it was over. And I uh, always look for excuses as why to not go with my friend when he asks me. You see, when I look back on church growing up from the outside, from as an outsider looking into the church, it didn't make sense to me. It didn't make sense. It, it, it seemed like a waste of time. And, and it's no wonder that other people look at pe- church people and they think that we are brainwashed. And that's the only reason we want to come and put up with this. I think the only way really to understand the church is from the inside. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning in Acts chapter 2. What is the church? What is it? I hear people all the time, reject church because they would say, you know, I don't agree with organized religion. Maybe you've heard that before. And they will cite all the bad things that churches have done, maybe on a personal level to them, like the churches have been really cruel and mean and vicious to people and have run people off in different ways. Or maybe they will cite all of the things that the church has done throughout the past 2,000 years that have not been super great. And so maybe you ask somebody about church, and, and, and they only see the negative things. They only see how churches were complicit in advocating for slavery a couple hundred years ago that, and, and, and advocating that African Americans had less intrinsic value. They see the crusades, right, the crusades and how, how there was this fighting in God's name to take land and to go take the holy land. In God's name. They, they see uh, this pre-Reformation Catholic church who would sell indulgences, like little tickets to heaven, that if you gave money to the church, we'd give your relative in, in purgatory, you know, a couple thousand years off purgatory, depending on how much money you give. They saw the church burn people at the stake for things that they just didn't agree with, and so, we're, like, you know, like translating the Bible into English, and so we're going to kill you. Or they saw the slaughter of many women who were accused of being witches, you know, if they, if they sank, they weren't witches when they were dead. And if they floated, they were witches. And so we're going to burn them. They see Christians fight and churches split. And they see that there are thousands of denominations because we can't agree on anything. And so we disagree and make another church and go on. And people look at these things and they say, I want nothing to do with the church because it's brought nothing but misery. And maybe we push back on that and we say, hey, you know what? Yes, you know, the church has done some bad things. The church has been on the wrong side of some of these issues. And there are some bad apples, but we might point to things and say, you know what? There were Christians who refused to fight in the Roman Colosseum and were slaughtered and mauled to death by lions. And in so doing, shut down forever the Colosseum games and stopped all the violence. You can look at Christians who ran into towns and cities when the Black Plague was sweeping the world, and instead of running away like everyone else did, the churches ran in, risking and giving their lives to care for the sick. You can look at churches who serve the poor and the homeless and care for single mothers and fight for racial reconciliation and who do really, really good things to the community and really care for people. But yet, so often, we find people unconvinced that the church is good and they want nothing to do with it. There are people who won't come to our church because they see the word Baptist on the sign and they think that means that their wives can't wear pants and the preacher's just going to yell at them and make them feel bad. 
And the point is, there can be a lot of confusion and anger about what the church is and what it's supposed to be. What the church is at its core, at its root, when it's in its purest form, what is the church? And so is the, is the church just the culmination of these mistakes that it's made? Is the church good or bad? What is it? It would seem there is no better way to answer that question than to go back to the beginning. To go back to the moment the church was born in Acts chapter 2 to get this untarnished view of what the church is. And maybe by understanding this, it will help us always be kind of aligning and realigning ourselves to become the church that God wants us to be. Last week in Acts chapter 1, we saw the disciples finally starting to trust Jesus. And they, they obey him, they go to Jerusalem, they pray, they replaced Judas with a new disciple, and they waited. And here they are in the upper room just waiting, waiting for something, a sign, a vision, a feeling. They're not sure. It has something to do with the Holy Spirit. They don't know, but they're told to wait, and so they're trusting Jesus, and they're waiting. And then after many days had gone by, they're sitting there waiting, and on Pentecost, which is the 50th day after the Passover, which is a Jewish festival, they hear, they're standing up in the upper room, and they hear this rushing wind come through the room, and then they see these tongues of fire uh, appear over everyone's head, and everyone begins to speak in other languages. And then uh, Peter goes outside, and he sees all of these people from all over the world, and he stands up in front of this large crowd, and he begins to preach. And the Holy Spirit gives him these words to say. And something amazing happens, that all these people from all over the world, every tribe, tongue, and nation, uh, all those names that are hard to read are there. And as Peter preaches about the mighty works of God, every one of them understands perfectly what he is saying in his own language simultaneously. And as Peter preaches the gospel, for really the first time, 3,000 people come to know Jesus and are baptized and join the church, and the church was born. You see, a lot of things changed on this day, on, in Acts chapter 2, on the 50th day after Passover on Pentecost. A lot of things changed. The, the Holy Spirit came and changed a lot of things, brought to light many things that had been promised for a really, really long time. And this morning, I want to show you five things that I see in the text, five things that changed that day, five things, five new things that made them the church, five things that transformed them from being just a bunch of Jews up in a room who followed Jesus to making them the church. Five things that were new to them and made them the church, and those same five things should continue to mark us as the church today. In verse 4, we read, that not just the disciples, but everyone in the upper room, which is about 120 people, had all been following Jesus, and all of these people in a moment were filled with the Spirit. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to us because we talk about the Spirit a lot, but it is. In this moment, there is something radically new happening that had never happened before. You see, these people, these Jews, knew the Holy Spirit, right? They knew that the Holy Spirit had done incredible things in the past throughout the Old Testament. That wasn't new to them. They knew the Spirit of God came in his vision to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37 and raised the, this army of dry bones from the dead. They knew that the Spirit empowered Samson to give him incredible strength to knock down that pillar and crush the Philistines. He knew, they knew that the Spirit came, came upon David and gave him strength to overcome Goliath and his other enemies as king. 
They knew that the Spirit was real and empowered people. But in every situation in the Old Testament, every single one, the Spirit comes on somebody, gives them some kind of supernatural strength or wisdom or ability to, to do something. And after that thing is over, the Spirit departs. The Spirit comes and empowers and then leaves. But our text this morning says that when the Spirit came, that they were filled with the Spirit. And that is a different thing altogether. They're not just being empowered, but they are being filled. Something else is happening. Now notice also this other word that is used in verse 3, when tongues of fire appear, rested over them. Now the tongues we get because they're going to speak in different languages, but why the fire? Why are they, why are they on fire? It seems weird. What is the significance of fire in the Bible? Well, think about what do the burning bush, the pillar of fire that guided the Israelites, the fire on top of Mount Sinai when Moses got the Ten Commandments, the fire in the temple, what, all, what do all of these things have in common? That they mark the presence of God. The Bible says that God is a consuming fire. And so when God shows up, it is often marked by fire in the Bible. And so the Spirit uh, filled everyone in the Old Testament, uh, uh, came on and left. But the, the other thing that happens in the Old Testament about the Spirit, he only ever fills one thing. He comes on and leaves everybody else, but he fills one thing, and that's the temple. There's this whole, whole story about how the Spirit comes and fills up the temple and stays there. So when we combine these ideas that we are filled with the Spirit and it is marked by fire, what does that tell us? It tells us that from this moment on, God's full, special, Shekinah glory presence no longer is residing in a temple made by human hands, but now resides inside every human heart who follows Christ. This consuming fire, this full presence of God has taken up residence in us. And so now every true Christian is a temple because God lives inside of them. Every true Christian is a temple because God lives inside of them. Well, what does this mean? It means that you do not have to come into a church building to meet with God. It means that when something crazy happens in your life, like in the movies, you don't have to go find the church to go pray, right? In the movies, that's what they always do, right? Something crazy is happening, and they go to the chapel, or they go to the, the church, and they pray. Because, but we don't have to do that, because God is with you, living inside of you at every moment. You are the temple. So wherever you go, it's like the, the, the temple is going with you. You are it. You can just pray. You know, we misuse, we misuse a verse all the time uh, in Christian culture. We say, hey, you know, whenever two or three are gathered, he's there. You know, no, that's not true. That verse is about people getting in trouble and people being disciplined. Wherever you go by yourself, God is there. It's not like, man, I need to pray. I need to get two, two couple guys. Can y'all come so I can pray so God can be here? That's not how it works. Wherever you go... God is there, not just because he's all, all everywhere, he's omnis all, all, omnipresence. It's not because of his omnipresence, because you are a temple. And wherever you go, the full presence of God is in you. When you wake up, 
when you walk to your kitchen to make your coffee, when you get in your car, when you head to work, when you leave for vacation, no matter where you go, God is with you. And not just near you, he's in you. This has so many implications that we could preach a whole sermon on it, but let me just have you consider this. If you are a temple and you have immediate full access to God 24-7, it means you don't need a priest to grant you access to God. It means you don't need a pastor to teach you fancy theological ways to pray. It means you just need to open your heart and speak with the fumbling words and with the groans that are too deep for words, as Roman says, and he will hear you and understand. But also this, the church, therefore, can never be a building. There are lots of really beautiful church buildings in the world, but God doesn't live in any of them. The church can never be a place. Church is a people. Ephesians 2 paints this beautiful picture of people being knit together into Christ who is the cornerstone. And as we come together, we make this holy dwelling for God. When we come together, when we gather, we are the church. Did you know the word church, is the Greek word is ekklesia, and it means to gather. It means the gathering. Means the coming together, the assembly. The church is where the people are. If we all get out of this room right now and went out uh, to the field out back, the church would be out there. If we all met in a movie theater, the church would be there. If we all met in a stadium, the church would be there. If we all met in my house, the church would be there. Wherever we gather together, the church gathers. Because together we become one big temple in the Lord. The people are the church. Because it is in the people that God lives. He no longer dwells in buildings made by human hands. But think about this. The same pillar of fire that led the Israelites. The same fire of the burning bush. The same presence that filled the temple and the same fire that scorched the top of Mount Sinai. That same presence that filled the temple. That if you walked into it in an unworthy manner, you dropped dead. Or remember the Ark of the Covenant when those guys were carrying it that one time and they tripped and that guy put his hand up to stop it and he died? That presence lives in you. The same presence that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And so, one more application. Don't ever think you're worthless because you matter enough to God that he chose to make you his home. If he chose to make you his home, you're worth quite a lot. The second thing that changes the first thing is we become a, a new temple. The second thing that changes is we become uh, is who is making up now the people of God. Throughout the Old Testament, God's people were a chosen nation, the nation of Israel. Being born into this nation meant you inherently on some level were the uh, belong to the covenant people of God just by being born a Jew. There are a handful of instances throughout the Old Testament where outsiders come into Israel. Think Rahab. Right? Think about the story of Ruth. These outsiders come in and join the people of Israel. And the, but that is only this foreshadow of what was to come. Notice verse 5 when he says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews and devout men from every nation under heaven. At, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. It is important that this happens at the birth of the church. At this moment, this scene happens at the birth of the church. 
It wasn't that the church was born and years later they decided, hey, you know what? We ought to like get some non-Jews in this place. It wasn't a, a few weeks later that they said, hey, you know what? I think actually the church isn't just for Jews. No, that was, it was in this moment, the moment the church was born, the moment the church was formed, and at that moment, it had people joined from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation are added to the people of God. God allows for everyone to hear Peter's sermon in his own language so that they could come and believe. Now, I want you to notice for a minute that this is reversing something that went wrong in the Old Testament. Do you remember this in Genesis chapter 11, the story of Tower uh, the story of the Tower of Babel. The issue in the story of Tower of Babel isn't just that they built this temple or uh, this tower up to heaven. It was that they weren't following the commands of God. He told them to spread out and spread his glory across the, the world. And they didn't. They just huddled up together and wanted to do their own thing. And so what did God do? But he judged them and, and caused them to spread out. And he confused their languages so that they could not understand one another. And what is happening here? But that, that division and separation and alienation is being reversed. And so now the nations are no longer divided and segregated, but are coming together, understanding one another in one voice. God is reversing the Tower of Babel exactly as he promised in chapter 12, the next chapter, to Abraham that through his seed, through his offspring, the whole world would be blessed. Then notice verse 17. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh, not just Israel, but all flesh. And then verse 18, even on my male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit. Before this moment, you, you had to be a Jew really to know God. Before this moment, every other nation and people group, including us, we're separated from God without any hope to be redeemed. But Acts 2 shows us that God's true people are not Jewish. They are not a single nation. God's people do not become his people by being born into the right nation. They become his people by coming to Christ and through Christ alone. Verse 6 says that the multitudes came together. People with different skin colors, people who spoke different languages, people of different cultures, people of different values and belief systems all come together now united around Christ. See, the church can never be defined by any nation or any people group. The church flies no flag of any country. The church is red, yellow, black, and white. The church is multilingual. Our, think about this. Our, we have brothers and sisters who will be our brothers and sisters for eternity uh, from, uh, from every country on earth. When we get to heaven, we will not find mostly Americans. Our family is made up of, of all those who trust in Christ and hold him dear. We, we have Mexicans and Puerto Ricans and Germans and Russians and Egyptians and those from the Congo and those from India and those from Afghanistan and those from Haiti, Rabinho, and those from California, believe it or not. One of the reasons... The church has failed so many times in the last 2,000 years. It's because we make the same mistake the Jews did. That in their pride and arrogance, they saw themselves alone as God's people. They saw the nation of Israel as supreme. But America will pass away. America will cease to exist one day. And only the kingdom of God will remain. 
a kingdom with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Because when the Holy Spirit came, he made a new people group called the church. And that is the only flag we fly. Fly the flag of Jesus. We fly the church flag. We say, come all who are weary and heavy laden, we will give you rest. We don't care what you sound like, what you look like. Because when the Holy Spirit came, he made a new people. So there's a new temple, there's a new people, and third, there's a new message. Verse 22 says, men of Israel, this is Peter speaking, he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. This is a good verse. Listen to this. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Come on. Let me read that again. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. There we go. For centuries... The message of God's people was strict adherence to the law. Follow the rules, do your sacrifices, be faithful to God, and you will be saved. But now there is a new message. And the irony is, this new message comes from the act that the disciples believed was their end. It comes from the moment the disciples thought it was over. The moment they thought that, it, that their journey had ended, the crucifixion and death of Jesus by the hands of lawless men, the disciples scatter. They're scared. They're hiding. They think it's all over. Their teacher is, and their leader was dead. And so now what? They don't know what to do. But it is just like God to use weakness, to use the opposite tactics of the world, not in strength, not in battle, not with the sword, but to use his own death by the, as the means by which he would save the world. That which they thought ended their mission was actually the central message of their mission. Now the message of God's people is no longer follow the law, be better, count your steps on the Sabbath to make sure you don't take too many steps and work too hard and therefore offend God. No longer is the message one of rigorous and depressing self-examination to make sure you're doing enough for God to love you. Now the message is look to the one who died in my place, the one with whom death could not hold. Because Think about this. Our central message is that forgiveness of sin and salvation comes... New life comes not from trying to be a better person. It comes from giving our lives to the one who who has so much life inside himself that death could not undo the life inside of him. Death couldn't hold him because there was so much life in him that death couldn't, couldn't quench it. And so he gives it to us. This message is supernatural. This message is a little strange. And the church has gotten itself in trouble throughout history when it is trying to make the message a little less strange, a little less weird, a little less supernatural. Churches have wanted to be cool. And so they want to make it easier to swallow the truth. They want more people to come, and they've got good intentions. They want more people to come, and they think if they remove the difficult parts to believe, then more people will come and be saved. And so churches have said, you know what, that resurrection stuff, 
And that's just kind of like an illustration. You know, it's, just, it's figurative, not literal. It's just, you know, it's like he's got new life, you know. But, you know, they've said, hey, let's not talk so much about the blood because, you know, like that's, they creep kids out and, and nobody wants to hear about like Jesus bleeding all over the place and gasping for breath and dying. Like that's just, let's just not talk. Let's, let's, talk, let's just have a sermon series on seven steps to have a healthier marriage. It's too gruesome. You know, let's just talk about love. Let's not talk about Jesus being the only way to salvation, that he's the exclusive way, and that if you don't go through him, you don't have any hope. Let's not talk about that because people don't like that. It makes us sound too exclusive. It makes us sound closed-minded. But in removing these types of things, the church has removed the very message that is needed to save people. Church is strange. Our message is strange, but it is the strangeness of the message that makes it not of this world. It is the strange things of the message that give it the power to actually save. And save it does. Verse 21 says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you are good or if you are bad, you must call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. The Spirit gave a new message to the church, a message of grace and of new life that comes through the death and resurrection of Jesus alone. Peter preaches this new message. He doesn't hold back. He says, you crucified him. You handed him over to the hands of lawless men. You crucified him, but don't worry, death couldn't hold him, and he's going to give you a second chance. And they believe. We have a new temple, we have a new people, we have a new message, and fourth, there's a new choice. You see, since you uh, now join, you don't join the covenant people of God by being born into the right nation. You join the people of God by believing a particular message. And that means there's a choice. And the choice is clear in the text. When Peter preaches his sermon, and everyone hears it in his own language, some of the people begin to think that the disciples are drunk. Because they sound like a bunch of crazy people. Because they're all speaking these different languages, and so they think that they're drunk. And so some of the crowd dismissed what Peter was saying and didn't believe. Now, if you go down to verse 37, it says, Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Notice where it says they were cut to the heart. The truth and the message of the gospel cut them so deep, it moved them to faith. And they trusted Christ and were baptized and joined the family of God. I want you to notice that there are only two responses to the gospel. The gospel either hardens or softens the hearer's heart. You, you either hear the gospel and you think, that is nonsense, it's not for me, or you hear it and you are so moved and changed that you give your life to Christ. For many of you in this room, you know what I mean. Maybe you heard the gospel 50 times or 100 times before you came to trust in Christ. And those first 49 times, you brushed it off. You made excuses. It's not for me. That's hogwash. But the last time you heard it, it was different. That last time you heard it, it cut 
deep to the heart. It moved you and it changed you and there was no stopping you from coming and giving your life to Christ. Paul writes in Romans that the gospel is the power of God to save. And so when the gospel comes to someone, it always comes with a choice, a choice no one can make for you, a choice your parents cannot believe for you, a choice your friends and your youth group cannot believe on your behalf. It comes with a choice that you must either be cut to the heart or dismiss it as hogwash. You must either trust or reject The gospel always comes with a choice. The Spirit creates a new temple, a new people, a new message, a new choice. And finally, the Spirit creates a new community. I want you to listen to this last section of the chapter. I want you to listen as I read this to the type of community that is instantly created amongst these people. Now remember, these are people from different cultures different nations who speak different languages. These are people who don't have anything else in common other than they have now come to trust Christ. Listen to this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Doesn't that sound really nice? Like, wouldn't you love to be able to trade in our fast-paced, get all you can for yourself, live it up now world that we live in? Wouldn't you love to give that up for this? The kind of community where we learn and grow together, where we enjoy family, like Thanksgiving dinner almost every day together. The kind that where we start out eating together and when we realize we've been sitting at the table for three or four hours and we've been done for a long time, but we don't want to get up because we want to keep talking. Where we are rooting for each other and working to see others' lives change and turn in the right direction. Where we care less for our own possessions and more for everyone else having everything they need to thrive and live. And every day, every time that we get together for worship, you are met with a hug. You are met and embraced with genuine love and concern for how your week was. And we all passionately and in unity worship the Lord. That is the kind of community the Holy Spirit creates among us. And when the world sees community like that, when the world can see from the outside looking in, the church begins to look a little less strange. Because the world is longing for that type of connection and community. How do I know that? Other than how the Bible talks about it. Rosaria Butterfield was a lesbian and an LGBTQ activist for over a decade. Now she's come to Christ, and she is in ministry as a pastor's wife, and she's written a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. She speaks about it in the book, and she speaks about it as she travels and talks, and she talks about the kind of close-knit community that is found in LGBTQ circles, how they fight for each other. 
She talks about how there, there is always uh, someone who has their home open every night of the week. Someone's home is open for a meal that if you need to come to be with someone, it's there. That they accept you no matter how different you are. She talks about how intentional that they are to make sure whatever you are struggling with, that you are cared for and fought for. Where you are welcomed, you are cared for, fought for, fought against any demons or struggles that you might be going through. It is no wonder that so many people are drawn to that community. Even if they're people, people who are not even of that lifestyle are drawn to that community because they want to be a part of a community like that. They have created and fostered a broken reality of what the church should be like. The world should be looking at the church longing to be a part of the type of loving, caring community that we have. They should be looking at us, looking at us and saying, man, I don't believe in Jesus, but I really want to because I want what they have. I don't really believe in Jesus, but I'd really like to be convinced otherwise because I want to be a part of that type of community. We should be the ones fighting for one another, honoring one another, opening our homes to one another, slowing down and giving up everything for each other, being radical in generosity. Because the Holy Spirit has created in us an eternal family. A family that should build stronger bonds than any being on any sports team or being a fan of some sports team ever could, being a part of a club ever could, and especially being a part of any LGBT community ever could. Fred Craddock was the guest preacher at this little church uh, between Nashville and Knoxville. And he was the guest preacher, and he went down there, and it was Easter morning, and he preached. And this church had a, uh, a tradition of uh, every Easter, they would go down to the river out behind the church and uh, have a baptism service. And so Fred Craddock preached this sermon, and they went down, and they baptized a, a handful of new people and put them in the river, and everybody clapped. And, and then they had a big fire where they were cooking dinner, and everybody come, came up out of the river, and they had this little, little booth set up so they could change clothes, get dried off, and they would go and down and sit by the fire. And then as every year it happened, this guy named Glenn introduced all the new people. Hey, this is so-and-so. They live down, down there, you know, by that down by the holler, and this is so-and-so. They live down there near the new Walmart, and this is so-and-so. He works over here. He'd introduce everybody, and when he was done, everyone else around the circle, everyone else around the fire, the church people would begin to introduce themselves, and they would say, my name is so-and-so, and if you ever need anybody to chop wood, you call me, and my name is so-and-so. If you ever need anybody to babysit, you call me. My name is so-and-so, and if you ever need anybody to repair your house, you call me. My name is so-and-so, if you ever need anybody to sit with you when you're sick, you call me. My name is so-and-so, and if you ever need a ride to town, you call me. And then they ate, and they had a square dance. Fred went up to the pastor of that church, and he said, I have never seen anything like that happen before. What do you guys call that? And he said, Fred, we call that the church. Have you ever experienced the church? I don't mean just coming to the service. 
Have you ever experienced what it means to be a part of the body, the church? Have you belonged? You'll know if you have, because if you have, you know there is nothing in the world like it. The church has made a lot of mistakes in the past 2,000 years, and we will make a lot more mistakes in the future. But I think the church is the most important thing in the world. Not because we're perfect or because we always get it right. We obviously don't. I think it's the most important thing in the world because when the Holy Spirit fills us, amazing things happen. In Acts 2, it happens. And it's happening around us little by little. And while I can break it down to five points and talk about a new temple and a new people and a new message, a new choice, a new community, it's bigger and more simple than that. The church is the most important institution in the history of the world because when a church becomes what a church is supposed to be, it is like time stands still. And old wounds are healed. There is both deep excitement and joy and calm that well up inside of us. When the church is the church, for a moment we get this brief foretaste of heaven and it is so good and so right. People on the outside looking in will never understand why the church means so much to us and why we continue to choose to be a part of it. But those of you who have tasted and have seen, you know, because when the church is the church, there is no place else you'll ever want to. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful this morning for the church the Holy Spirit coming and doing a work and creating this new thing. We're thankful because now we have brothers and sisters where we once had none. We have spiritual mothers and fathers where we once had none. We have people that when you need babysitting, they're there. When you need taken to the hospital, they're there. When you need a meal, they're there. When you need groceries picked up, they're there. We have a people that when you're struggling and sin, they're there. We have a people who, when you have been hurt, are there. We have a people to learn with and grow with, to laugh with and eat with, and to share this mission of taking the gospel to the world with. And Father, we know that people on the outside look in and they don't get it. I didn't get it. They look on the outside like, what? why do they just want to get together, wake up early and go sing some songs and listen to a guy speak? They don't get it. Father, if there are any in this room who are like that who don't get it, maybe they've come to church, but they've never belonged and they don't get it. Which is, would you this morning give them a glimpse, a taste, an appetizer? of what they can have if they would belong to a church, to a people, to a new people, they would find a family. This morning, if you're here and you've never belonged or don't currently belong to a church, and you would say, Brent, I want to belong to this church. Would you come up and share that with me as we sing? That I might just pray with you and get that ball moving. You're here this morning and you would say, Brent, I can't belong to a church because I don't believe in Jesus. Like I believe in God, maybe I've thought that, but I don't really, I've never trusted Christ and I don't even know how to do that or what that means. Come see me.
Come see these guys standing on either end of the room. Tell them that. Let us show you how your life can be transformed, that you can become a part of the church, a part of the family of God. If you want life, the only one who can give it to you is the one who has so much life inside of him that death couldn't hold him. And so the grave spit him out. That life is available to you. If you're here this morning, you just need to pray. We'd love to pray with you. Come forward as we sing. If you're here and you just need to sing to Jesus, just do that. Let's stand and sing together. Jesus, give us courage. All his people said.